2003 is an incredibly important year, yet probably not for the reason you are thinking. For those who remember it, it was a year that most brings up images of the invasion of Iraq, the completion of the Human Genome Project, and the release of the final part of the Lord of the Rings film trilogy. Yet another, equally important event occurred that year, which rarely gets mentioned. In fact, it mostly went unnoticed at the time. That year, Tom Anderson helped to found a company called MySpace. Within three years, the site would have 20 million unique visitors per month. Three years later, it quadrupled it. By 2006, it was the most visited website in the country. And while it's experienced a momentous fall since then, its impact is still being felt. The era of social media dominance had arrived. Today, over four and a half billion people use some form of social media, a number that has more than tripled in the past decade alone and there's little sign that it will slow in growth in the coming years. Before long, it seems inevitable that everyone on the planet will have some form of social media account. Yet while in one sense, places like TikTok and Facebook have connected us like never before, these sites are now under intense scrutiny. Are they actually harmful to us and our society? What about the church? On this week's episode, we tackle the question of whether social media is truly dangerous. another episode of Spiritually Incorrect. On this week's episode, we have the evils of social media, how Frankenstein predicted Facebook, and why John didn't get a cell phone until he was 21. I'm your host, Seth Hart. Join with me is Jonathan Lionheart. I didn't get a cell phone until I was 21, and I was better for it. My life has gone downhill ever since. I knew if I included that in the intro, I'd get some sort of response from you. Yeah, like you want your life to be more connected and you use your phone as this tool, but if all the pieces of your life suck, you don't want them to be integrated and connected through your phone. And that was the case. So that's what's really funny is, is I feel like I talk about and I sort of exude a more Luddite anti-technology attitude, but it's really you that has lived that experience and actually put it into practice far more than me. Well, I do look like a caveman, Seth. I mean, you can't see me my face on this podcast, but people have often mistaken me for a homeless man in the past. A homeless man with a very active Facebook presence. <laughs> Speaking of which, when did you actually get a Facebook? Do you remember? I remember it 2006. I remember it exploding. Wow. I was in my last year of high school and everybody was getting it. I remember it was also 2006 and it was actually your wife, my sister. You needed an invite back then to get on. Oh, that's right. Facebook. The exclusivity. Right. That's how Facebook originally took off is you had to get specially invited to get onto Facebook. And Madison had gotten an invite and she invited me. And so I remember how awesome I felt that I was part of this exclusive social <laughs> this network. exclusive club. Yeah. Congrats, that now has Seth. like 3 billion people on the it. The world's biggest club. Yes. By far. Yeah. I mean, I obviously Facebook has been helpful with being connected, especially I've moved countries multiple times. And so I have all of these different communities to keep up with and to be relationally engaged with. And I couldn't possibly do that without Facebook the way that I have. Yeah, but you can't rank your top 10 friends anymore like you could with MySpace. You could? Did you not know that? Man, how are we supposed to hierarchically arrange relationships and identity and value without that? You could choose a song that played when people visited your page. You had to rank your top friends 
And I remember Madison hated it that she was not in my top friends. I said, you're my sister. You don't count. <laughs> and so we had, there was so much drama from top friends. My favorite thing on Facebook was Honesty Box. People don't really use it anymore, but you could anonymously send messages to people through Honesty Box. And I just told everybody everything. I told everyone what I thought of them. It was wonderful. That's awful. It removed all of my social anxiety and just allowed me to be pure, unadulterated bluntness, which I suppose is what the internet does for everybody now. But how is that ever a thing? That just, that just, what did they expect would happen? Well, I, I guess they didn't let you use it because they thought you were stupid. He said, quite honestly, I didn't even remember, remember that nor getting it. Gosh, I am glad. One thing I'm glad they got rid of was pokes. Pokes. Oh, I forgot about pokes on Facebook pokes. where you could poke people. And it was like mildly Flirty. suggestive, but you know, you could also do it with friends. And I, yeah, that was great. That was a perfect in between type of thing that you could suggestively poke someone you liked. Yeah, and if they poked back, that was like their way of saying they liked you or whatever. What a great, what a great way of avoiding a DTR. <laughs> exactly. I remember me and my best friend, we had a poke war going on for over a decade. And what we would do is we'd wait. Sometimes we'd wait for months and then poke them back and see if they missed it. It and was it a battle did. of, it was a battle of attrition. It was a slow fade as you gave yourself away. And, and I suppose that's what today's episode is indeed about the slow fade of giving ourselves away to technology and social media, because as much as we've enjoyed Facebook and Twitter and all of these different TikTok things that now make me sound really old because I'm saying them weird. Okay, boomer. As much as we've enjoyed Facebook and TikTok and Twitter and all of our playthings, slowly we've begun to realize that they are also playing with us and warping the way that we think and see and experience the world, perhaps irreparably. Wow, I don't know why we even bring on an expert when you can wax eloquent like that. I know, right? I'm an, yeah, ex yeah, I'm yeah. an eloquent waxer. <laughs> oh, gross. On that awkward note, John, who is our guest? Our guest today is Dr. Chad Ragsdale. Chad is the Executive Vice President of Academics and a professor at Ozark Christian College. He got his doctorate at Talbot School of Theology, focusing on social media, technology, and the church. And so he's going to tell us today how we're all doomed. Indeed, indeed. And also, a little personal note, he's also a professor for both of us way back in our undergraduate years. But you'll hear plenty about that yeah. in this episode. So if you hear us being overly deferential or afraid to contradict him or shivering in our boots, that's because he still has power over us and we're terrified. Well, on that note, let's get to it. Chad, how are you doing today? I'm wonderful, Seth. It's good to see you. It's good to see you again. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. First off, what initially drew you to the ideas surrounding technology and social media and, and its impact on the church? I can answer this question somewhat regularly. And the, the answer that I, I give is that in higher education, one of the things that you recognize is that oftentimes people will gravitate towards studying certain things as a way of trying to figure out their own life. So that's that's definitely true. You know, like our psych and counseling majors will testify to this, like what draws them to psych and counseling is just a deep abiding desire to figure out kind of how to help themselves and in the process, how to help other people, you know. So I, I think academically, we're all attracted to particular fields of study as a way of trying to figure out our own place in the world, if I could get philosophical like that. And so for me, that was definitely the case with technology. I did not approach my studies in technology as an expert or as someone who has it all figured out. Actually, it's quite the opposite. The reason why I was so attracted to it is because I recognized within myself the uncomfortable presence of technology in my life and the way that it affects my way of being, my way of thinking, my way of interacting with other people. I have three teenagers. They're awesome. They're great. But I, I certainly with them and with their generation, I see how technology and social media in particular is affecting their way of being in the world. And then just being here at Ozark training men and women for Christian ministry, I became really interested in how technology is affecting us, not just as individual disciples, but how it might be affecting us collectively as the church. And so I guess my short answer to the question is the reason that I gravitated toward it is trying to figure out for myself 
just what influence technology was having on my way of thinking, my way of being, et cetera. We often assume that technological progress is inherently good. I mean, that's why we call yeah. it progress. It's an inherently positive term. Do you think that Christians have a unique view on this, a unique approach, or should have a unique approach to what technological progress is, or whether it's inherently positive or negative? Gosh, that's that's a huge question, John. So basically, my approach to technology, I, I see it through the creation, fall, redemption rubric of scripture generally. We were placed in the garden to multiply and to rule with those two creational tasks. And I think that technology serves both of those creational tasks in a, what I would call, in a good way. But just like sin has affected every other part of our being, causing alienation with each other, alienation with the world, with God, etc., technology is subject to the same effects of the fall just generally. So I think in all sorts of things, not just with technology, and I think you, you guys would both agree with this, a Christian should try to avoid simplistic thinking on a host of issues. And so I would tell anybody asking this question, just the, the quick answer that I would give is, it's neither good nor bad because of the realities of life in this world and the realities of the human condition. There was a time in the, especially in the Middle Ages, this became really popular in some circles in Europe where there was a technological apocalypticism without boring your audience too much. Basically, there is this idea among some people that one of the consequences of the fall was that Adam pre-fall possessed not just an intimate relationship with God, but he also possessed an intimate understanding of the world. And so Adam was basically a master craftsman. So he possessed all engineering, all mathematical, all mechanical knowledge. And one of the consequences of the fall is that it wasn't just a spiritual fracture. It was also we lost that knowledge. We lost access to that knowledge. And so the story of humanity is the story of trying to gradually over time reclaim that knowledge, the lost knowledge of the mechanical arts or whatever. This affected a lot of utopian and at times apocalyptic thinking in the Middle Ages, such that some people were of the opinion that technological progress would walk side by side with spiritual progress in the world. That sort of thinking definitely punctuates the way that American Christians have come to think about technology. The average American Christian throughout the last couple hundred years would see technology as an unqualified good. That technology is an instrument used by individuals and by churches collectively to advance God's kingdom upon the earth. And so America, especially evangelical Americans, have had sort of a eschatological view of technology insofar as always thinking in terms of how it's going to help to usher in the kingdom. And that goes back for hundreds of years. Now, I don't think there is there are different things about that perspective that I would actually agree with. I think there is an instrumental value of technology in spreading the gospel, making the name of Jesus known. Even you look at the New Testament with Paul, Paul had an instrumental understanding of certain technologies in his own life and spreading the gospel. But again, I think one of the fundamental problems with that is that it's naive to the reality that you can't ever accept a new technology into your life and into your world without that technology in some way changing you or reshaping you into its image. And I think that's the part of the equation that too many people have been neglectful of. And maybe we could talk more about that. But to me, that's why I don't see it as a pure good. I think there are certain things about technology that we would be wise to resist. That's really fascinating, bringing the Middle Ages perspective into <laughs> the modern evangelical perspective. That's not something you often hear about. Bacon's book, The New Atlantis, it's a short book. Some people don't even think he finished it. And if you read it, it is pretty clipped at the end. But it's a utopianist book. And he blends together in that book technological progress. There's things that he predicts in that book, like submarines and helicopters and all sorts of crazy stuff he predicts in that book. But he links it together with spiritual progress, too. So the technological and the spiritual are kind of side by side.
It's amazing how a book for other years moments still impacting our imagination and how we think about technology. Oh, yeah. I mean, plenty. You know, one of the fun experiments that I do with my students is I have them list their top 10 inventions throughout history. And I try to limit it to more modern history. So I'm not including like the wheel, you know, stuff like that. And it's a fun exercise because you learn in that exercise the things that are meaningful to students. You learn how they're identifying what matters and what doesn't matter. The way that I frame up that discussion is, you know, it's a consequential invention if it literally changes what it means to be human. One of my complaints with a lot of like Marvel movies and stuff like that, and this this is why they have to dabble in things like the multiverse or time travel or whatever, is because they introduce technologies in so many of those movies that literally if that technology actually existed, everything else would have to hit the pause button and all relationships in society would be restructured and reordered around that invention. I know we're going off track here a little bit, but you know, there's that, there's that scene in the first Avengers movie where the sky opens up and all of a sudden we're being invaded by an alien army. And at that point, I'm, I'm like, you can't snap back to zero after that happens. Like, no, that happened. Like everything after that point has to be wildly different. And that's, that's a consequential technology is whenever something's invented... And it just changes fundamentally what it means to be human. And so for me, there's there's a handful of them. Printing press was a consequential moment, consequential invention that changed the definition of being human. I would also put the internal combustion engine on the list as well, because that led to steam transportation was difficult and not really cost effective, especially for private individuals. But the internal combustion engine shrunk the size of the planet. It changed the way that we thought about time and space. People didn't think about time and space in the same way at all that they thought about it after the internal combustion engine. And that led to airplanes and obviously everything else. I would also put the microprocessor or the microchip. That was a consequential moment. But Seth, I think we're living through another one of those moments. I think the advent of what a lot of scholars call Web 3.0, which is the mobilization of the internet. So Back when I was in, I started college in 1996. That's how old I am. The internet was, it had been around for a few years, but it was still slow, generally speaking. You had to go to a designated location to use the internet. This is the era of like internet cafes. Like you would actually go to a place, pay money just to sit down at a computer and surf the internet. My college didn't even have internet access my first three years. It wasn't until I was getting ready to graduate that the college provided internet access to all of its students. It was a novelty. It wasn't the center of our life. It was more of a novelty. The reason that a lot of people identify Gen Z as beginning in 1995 is that anybody born after 1995, the reason that date is chosen is because Windows 95 came out that year, which made the internet ubiquitous on all computers. And so anybody born after 1995, I think, when were you born, Seth? 91. And John, what what year were you born? I'm just going to say I was born in the 80s. In the 80s. Okay. So you would still technically be millennials, I guess. But anybody born after 1995, they can't remember what life was like before the internet. And specifically, many of them can't remember what life was like before they had the internet strapped to their hip all at all times every day. I think we underestimate actually just how much Web 3.0 has fundamentally shifted what it means to be a human in the world, to have access to all the world's information at the touch of our fingers, but also to have everyone else have access to us at all times and in all places. It's shifted what it means to be a human. And I think it's shifted even the ways that we think about discipleship, the way that we think about church. So I think we're in the midst of one of those key transitional moments. And I don't know that we, I don't know that we really know how it's going to turn out. I think people living in the 15th century when the printing press was coming out, if you ask them, hey, how much is this changing about life? I'm not sure that they would have been able to give an answer because they were still in the midst of it. But I think 100 years from now, we'll look back at this as being a very consequential time. I still remember as a young kid and the first time that I was able to, on my dad's phone, look up the score of the St. Louis Cardinals game. Yeah. And I just thought that was the coolest thing amazing. ever. Yeah, it's amazing. I remember when I was still in high school at the time, I wanted to know if one of my favorite musicians, if he had released, uh, if there had been a new CD released 
I'm like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to go to the record store or whatever and check it out. And my friend's like, hey, let me show you something. It's up in my. And so he took me out to his bedroom, sat down at his computer and he went on his computer and used like web crawler or Netscape or something like that. And he went to this this guy's website, this artist's website, and it showed me his entire library of songs that he'd released. It blew my mind. And there wasn't even any graphics on the website. It just blew my mind that you could go to your computer and get that information. Kind of jumping off of that, though, there's been moments of technological change in the shift of how we see ourselves as human. But something that I've noticed, when you go look at these old news clippings of what the future will be like from 1900 to 1950, right. even you brought it back to... Francis Bacon. Yeah. It was nearly universally the future is better. We're on an uphill climb. That doesn't seem to be at least universally the case today with things like Black Mirror, even Terminator, the popularity of that franchise. What's been shifting? Well, we've always been, and I think this actually goes back to biblical times. You talk about the Tower of Babel and other things. We've always been a bit paranoid about the things that we create. The best example of this is the Frankenstein novel. So Frankenstein was written in the midst of the Industrial Revolution, and it reflected a paranoia that was that was taking root in various parts of society that we were actually creating an inhumane world. Are we actually through our industrial progress? Are we creating our own destruction? And so the brilliance of that novel was she put pen to paper and identified this paranoia that is deep within the human psyche. Basically, the fear is we're going to create conditions such that it is actually inhospitable to human flourishing, that we're going to create an apex predator that's finally going to place us underneath its thumb. So this paranoia, what I would say, Seth, is that this paranoia has been around for a while. I would agree, though, that I think it is accelerating. In the reading and the research that I've done, a lot of people identified World War II and the years immediately following World War II. The philosophy of technology went dark after World War II. So you had guys like Jacques Lull in France, you had Heidegger, you had Marshall McLuhan a little bit later on, but you, you had all these, all these thinkers post-World War II. And actually, you see some of this in C.S. Lewis, even some of his stuff on technology, but All these thinkers started looking at technological progress with new eyes. Look at what we were able to do with technology just to kill and destroy and level entire cities. We've released the power of the atomic bomb. And in a moment, we can take out tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives. So the idealism of technology, certainly World War I shattered that, but nothing like World War II where it was impossible after World War II to look at a pure instrumentalist. Basically, there's two philosophies of technology. One philosophy of technology is instrumentalism, that that the tools that we use, we can use them for upright, virtuous purposes or for evil purposes, according to how they've been designed and how they've been made. That's the instrumentalist view. But after World War II, the philosophy of technology became much more deterministic. So Marshall McLuhan, Jackie Lull, Heidegger, all these guys using different language, they started to talk about technology in terms of the things that it does to us. You use technology, and in the process, that technology shapes you into its image. Technology doesn't leave you alone. The reason that I think this paranoia is increasing in our day is because we are creating inhumane systems. There's something within us that knows living a purely virtual life is an inhumane existence. We're creating technology that doesn't just work for us now, like the steam engine used to work for us. Now we're creating technologies that even think for us. We have the internet, Google, chatbots, etc. So now with our technological prowess, are we creating a scenario where we become antiquated and unnecessary? Human beings no longer matter. And so that's, I think, the roots of the paranoia. So you, you have people being very paranoid about artificial intelligence, being very paranoid about the internet, just more generally, automated manufacturing, all this stuff. And it's all related to this fear about creating an apex predator that puts us out to pasture, basically. And I think some of those fears, frankly, are justified. I think some of them are just paranoia and probably we'd be well to set them aside. But I don't think all those fears are necessarily unjustified. 
Well, now that you've kind of given us a good sort of historical, theoretical background and foundation, maybe we can zoom in a little bit to social media specifically. Yeah. Why has social media just become so insanely popular? What attracts us to these platforms and what kind of role do they serve in our culture? Well, what attracts us to them is the same thing that attracts us to most technologies. We see it as a means by which we can make our life easier. We use technology to bring order to our world and we use technology to bring efficiency to our lives. Something like Facebook, which is sort of the grandfather of social media platforms, provides both. It, it provides people a way to, to bring order to their relationships. So the relationships that I have on Facebook are on my own terms, in my own way. I dive in, I dive out whenever I feel inclined to do that. And it also makes my relationships more efficient. So I can, again, I can choose to spend as, as much or as little time invested in a digital relationship as possible. It's different with a three-dimensional physical person in my life. A three-dimensional physical person is messy and inconvenient and makes demands on me that aren't always things that I necessarily want to do. But virtual relationships give me what I think is going to be the best of both worlds. So I can be connected to people, but I have that connection completely on my own terms. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so seductive. That's one of the reasons why it's so popular. I mean, I'm on social media quite a bit. It's popular with me. I think there's value in social media. I don't know that people spend as much time reflecting on what the cost of social media is. That's kind of my, I always hate to be the curmudgeon in the room, but I feel like on conversations like this, I end up being the curmudgeon. Like nobody's saying there's not value in social media. There is great value in social media. I just wish people would reflect more on the costs of social media. And there are costs. And maybe we'll get into that more. I, I do wonder though, John, and maybe you have an opinion on this, Seth. I do sometimes wonder what the future of social media is. This is a social experiment that hasn't been going on very long. Facebook became really available to everyone as recently as like 2007, 2009, kind of in that neighborhood. So we're in a, an experiment that's much less than 20 years old. I don't really know how the experiment's going to turn out. I sense that a lot of people are growing tired of social media. It has, it has less of an appeal than maybe it used to even five years ago. But then I also see the way that young people like, you know, teenagers using platforms like TikTok in a way that my generation, we never used Facebook the way that you're us they're using TikTok. So maybe just the use of social media is changing. But I, I do sometimes wonder what 20 years from now, what social media is going to look like. It's interesting to me that Facebook bought a VR yeah. program and then relabeled the whole organization as meta as this sort of, <laughs> yeah. we're going to be going beyond this world and kind of going into an entirely online virtual reality. And yeah. I guess it seemed odd to me initially that Zuckerberg was buying a VR program and pushing it forwards. But is there some sense in which VR and virtual reality in that way is the logical end of social media fully uploading the entire relational experience to the extent that we, we don't even fully exist in separate locations and times anymore, but constantly available to each other in a visual, physical way with avatars and all of this. John, this is why I think good theology matters. I think for it's good for us to reflect as, again, as dis individual disciples and collectively as churches to reflect on what does it mean to be a human being in this world? What does it mean to be connected in community? In what ways do humans really flourish? So one of the fundamental assumptions of social media, especially Facebook, as kind of the, God, the grandfather of all these social media companies, one of the fundamental assumptions of Facebook is that mere connectivity can be a reasonable substitute for communion. You can be connected to hundreds, thousands of people on a social media platform. You could even be connected in the metaverse in some way, shape, or form. But that mere connectivity is not the same thing and can't possibly deliver the same things that physical communion provide. And I'm, I'm using the word communion here in terms of like authentic community with one another. Now, this platform that we're on right now, we can hear each other, we can see each other. Certainly, the multifaceted 
nature of this platform lends itself better to communion than just if we were just texting or if we just saw each other's social media posts or whatever. So whenever you add senses to the experience, you're enhancing your ability to experience true communion. So Zoom is better, for instance, than just Facebook or whatever the case may be. But you're never going to be able to cross the threshold from virtual relationships to real authentic communion, no matter how much these tech companies try to provide that. And I think churches, not to go off on some rant, but I think churches that neglect this fact are really doing themselves and ultimately the kingdom a disservice because technology can be used in all sorts of wonderful ways to share content with people, to connect with people in certain limited aspects. But if, if you misunderstand technology as being the gathering place of the church, I just really got to question your assumptions about what community really consists of and how we've been created as embodied human beings intended to live in embodied relationships with each other. One other thing on this too, Jonathan, on the metaverse, Zuckerberg's a capitalist, you know, so anybody that runs a company like Facebook is always looking for ways to make more money, to get a broader audience, whatever. And I think I think Zuckerberg is learning the hard lesson that a free social media platform is really hard to monetize. And so he's looking for other revenue streams to try to do that. And so the name of the game with social media companies, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, whatever, the name of the game is engagement. The longer they keep you engaged on the platform, the more they can monetize it, whether it's with products that they're selling or advertisements or whatever. So they specifically construct it in such a way as to take as much time from you as possible. There's a great book that was written by Adam Alter is his name. It's called Irresistible. And the whole book is about behavioral addiction and how tech companies, he talks specifically about like Candy Crush, like the games that you download on your phones, that these companies are employing the same strategies that casinos employ to keep people sitting at the slot machine. It's creepy, some of the stuff that he brings up, some of the observations that he makes up in that book, because that's the name of the game. They want to keep you as immersed in their technology as possible because that's how they make money. And what we need to be mindful of is the various ways that that actually is changing us in the process. Yeah, I think that's fascinating that Candy Crush style games are the highest earning, most downloaded, most played games on the planet. It's not Fortnite. Yeah. It's not Call of Duty or Halo or anything like that. It's these Candy Crush kind mm -hmm. of games. You want to know why? It's, it is addictive for one. It's right on your phone for two. You don't have to have a console or anything like that to play it. But also it taps into a market that Halo never was able to tap into. And that's the female market. So if you take it pure gaming, if you do a demographic sample of every play, everybody playing video games, let's just say in our country, if you just looked at the demographic breakdown, what you would actually see is more women play video games than men, which doesn't seem to be right because women don't typically play games like Halo or Call of Duty or Madden or whatever. But the reason why the demographics are split the way they are is because women tend to play those Candy Crush type games much, much more than men do. And so that's how they become so popular is they found a different customer pool than the typical gaming companies dipped into. It's a brilliant strategy. If I'm just a pure capitalist, it's actually a brilliant strategy, but it's also insanely addictive too. And fun fact about that is Nintendo, when they switched from the GameCube to the Wii, they sold mm -hmm. 10 times as many Wiis as they did GameCubes because they yeah. said, we're not going after hardcore gamers anymore. We're going after casual gamers. Exactly right. And they ended up winning that generation yes. of the console war. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah, believe it or not. All right, I'd love to keep talking about this, but you brought up the fact of there are some negatives that the church should be aware about, and I didn't want to let that pass. Yeah. I just want to open up to you. What are some of the negatives? You brought up a couple. What are some other negatives of social media we should be aware of? Just right off the bat, to be very, I guess, specific. I guess anybody listening, I would want to talk specifically to parents who might be listening to this. The data is pretty convincing, and it's pretty compelling that there is a relationship between time spent on social media and various mental health problems. Now, I've got to tease that out a little bit. What, what they've actually found is young people 
who were already struggling with some mental health issues in their life, they will tend to gravitate more towards social media as a coping mechanism, as an attempt to self-medicate, which is precisely the wrong thing to do. It ends up making all of their issues worse. There's some data that suggests that young people who are pretty well squared away relationally and emotionally, et cetera, that they can use social media in a more benign way. It doesn't seem to affect them in the same way. I want the parents, especially listening to this, to be aware if your child is struggling, which frankly, what teenager doesn't struggle at some point or another, you need to be very conscious of the fact that them immersing themselves in social media is only going to exacerbate the problem. And I see so many parents doing the opposite. Oh, my child's struggling. What I need to do is I need to give them a phone, unrestricted phone, unrestricted access to the internet, because if I don't do that, it's actually going to make things worse. They're going to feel more alienated, more out, you know, so I need to give them as much as I can give them because that's going to make it better. And actually you're, you're giving your kid poison when you do that. A lot of kids struggle with this issue because of cyberbullying. Imagine you have a 15 year old daughter, right? And this 15 year old daughter is already struggling with some mental health issues. She's struggling with body image, positivity. She's also got a group of, of girls at school, popular girls at school that are nasty to her. And so what does she do? Well, in order to self-medicate, in order to feel better about herself, she just dives deeply into her phone because that's controllable. That's a diversion or a distraction from some of the other things that she's thinking about. Um, so rather than having a conversation with her parents, rather than going out and hanging with her friend, her real friends who treat her well, she decides to enter into the cave of social media. And what she sees when she goes there is she sees those same popular girls that mistreat her at school, she sees their ideal life presented for all to see on Instagram. Everything is filtered and edited and perfect, and, and they're with the right people in the right places. Meanwhile, she's a loser at home by herself on her phone. She immediately feels worse about herself. Then she posts something on Instagram that presents her in an unfavorable light. Maybe it's not a great picture or whatever. And now she's getting hate and negative feedback from all those people that otherwise she would have been able to leave at school. Now, instead of being able to leave them at school, now they're right there in her bedroom with her, telling her how ugly she is, how much of a loser she is. And so now her whole experience on social media has made all of her problems significantly worse. And to top it off, because she's so invested in social media, she hasn't invested her time building up relationships with three-dimensional people that can actually be a physical presence in her life. So now she feels like social media is the only place that she can go. And the only place that she can go is a place that's also toxic. And so this becomes a, a self-perpetuating cycle. And especially for young girls, I want to emphasize that point. This is a problem that the data says this is a significantly more, a bigger problem for young girls than it is for guys, partly because guys don't spend as much time on social media on average as girls do. Guys also process relationships and even self-image in much different ways than young girls do. So social media has a different impact on them, generally speaking. So Gene Twangy, another book that I'd recommend your audience, Gene Twangy wrote kind of the book on Gen Z. She calls it iGen, but the name of her book is iGen. Any parents out there listening to this probably should pick up that book because she just goes into great detail where she actually shows all this data and all these statistics that show when the iPhone became ubiquitous in the lives of teenagers around the year 2012, 2013 was when most teenagers around the country were getting their first iPhone. It was becoming important in the lives of teenagers. From that point forward, almost every other mental health indicator, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, every mental health factor spiked after cell phones became ubiquitous. There's other things that I would say, Seth, to your question. It's a great question. But the very specific, very pragmatic thing that I would say is, well, Jean Twangy puts it this way herself. If you want your young child to feel better about themselves, the best thing to do is to take them to church, get them involved in a sport, encourage them to go to the mall with friends. Even doing homework, believe it or not, doing homework is better for your mental health than spending hours on social media. 
So I tell parents that all the time. If your child is struggling, it seems counterintuitive, but take away their phone, not even as a punishment, but take away their phone as a way of saying, it's like saying if your child is living on nothing but Snickers bars, what would you do as a parent? You would take away the Snicker bars. It's the same way with social media. Maybe just one more question. Yeah. So you've talked about advice that you've offered to other parents. What sort of practices have you put in place for your own kids? Because I know yeah. you've, you've just, you know, you're raising teenagers right now. What are some things that you've seen that have produced good results? And right. maybe just an, extend that out a little bit. What have you seen yeah. that's been good? Well, it's tricky. And I get this question a lot. And the first thing that I say to people, not as a way of ducking the question, but the first thing that I say is, Families need to come up with habits and with rhythms that that really fit who you are as a family. I'm a little bit hesitant to being too prescriptive about like, do this or don't do this or whatever. We, as a family, we have kind of a no social media rule until you're at least your sophomore year of high school. I would frankly like it to be after that, but I, I allowed my daughter to get Instagram only after she watched The Social Dilemma I told her, you have, you have to either watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix or you have to read my dissertation. And so she chose to watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix. So that's kind of our rule. My son, like I said, there's a difference between boys and girls. My son has some social media. He's 18, but he's not on it hardly at all. For boys, the temptation with technology is different, as you probably know. The temptation is not necessarily to waste hours on social media, but Boys watch a lot more YouTube than girls do, typically. That's not always the case, but typically they do. Boys are more easily seduced by internet pornography than girls are, as a general rule. Again, not always the case. So we have a no social media policy. We have a no phone policy until junior high with families. And this is the thing, like, it does get complicated, you know, because most of us don't have landlines at our house. And so... I had to get my youngest daughter a phone well before I felt comfortable giving her a phone just because she was at home alone enough that she needed a phone. So she got a phone at, at 13, which is a little bit younger than I would prefer. The number one thing, Seth, the number one thing is this. If you are a parent, you have to put restrictions on their smartphones. One of the main reasons that we've chosen Apple, I'm not an Apple-like fanboy or whatever, but Apple tends to have really robust parental controls on iPhones. With all three of my kids, they just know as long as they're in my house that there will be parental restrictions on their technology. Such that my son, finally I relented when he turned 18. He wouldn't be able to be on his phone after 10 o'clock at night. And so he'd be out with his friends and he'd have to send me a text request for more time on his phone. And, you know, it was embarrassing for him. I kind of don't care about that either. So put restrictions on your phone. I would also say this, just something that we enjoy as a family is you need phone vacations. You need times during the day when your phone is not available. You need times during the week when your phone is not available. And then you also need times during your calendar, during your year, where you're intentionally going to have a no phone zone. For me personally, Seth, I feel digitally tethered to my phone, as I'm sure most people do, most of my day. But when I intentionally leave my phone in the other room and walk around the house doing other tasks, what I find is I don't miss my phone nearly as much as I assume that I would. I think a lot of it is just psychological. We assume that we have to have our phone with us at all times. And I think we need to break that mental block where just strategically leave your phone behind. If you go on a date with your wife, there's no reason for both of you to take your phone into the date. If you're hanging out with friends, there's no reason for everybody to have their phones out and ready and available. If you're having family dinner, same thing. Like, I think we've created this mental tether that we've got to intentionally take moments to break that tether. And I think what a lot of people discover is after you do it, it's easier than what you think to kind of have those moments where you break that tether. We kind of talked a lot about some of the dangers of social media generically for parents and just for general people. We've talked about the broader theology of technology and embodiment and this type of stuff. What would you perhaps see as some of the practical things for the church and Christians moving forward? You know, church is moving online, especially post-COVID. A lot of doctrinal and theological stuff is being hashed out no longer with books and articles, but over social media. Like David Bentley Hart can win a war through Twitter. 
these types of things. And Christian culture is being decided not necessarily by top pastors or whatever, but whoever has the most likes or views or followers. How, I mean, what are the church implications of this? It's also in the publishing world too, isn't it, John? Like I've sent out proposals on books and whatever, and I hear back from publishers, like how many followers do you have on social media? It's like, well, should that matter? I'm not sure why that should matter. You know, is it, is it good content or is it not? I'd have a whole lot more if you'd publish my book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gosh, I have so many thoughts on this, John. I think turning all of life into a platform is just generally speaking a bad idea. And I think it's contrary to the gospel. Seeing my life through the lens of performative platforms is a very toxic way to see my life. And pastors, I'll speak to myself, professors, we've got to be very mindful that that's not how we see ourselves, that we see ourselves through the likes, through the clicks, through the, the ways that we amplify ourselves through a platform, because it's so seductive and it's so dangerous. And it puts the focus of attention on me rather than where I really want it to be, which is on Christ. And this isn't new. I mean, this has always been a danger and a seduction, certainly, but technologies are making it easier to be seduced by this. So instead of investing myself deeply in a community, instead of investing myself deeply in an institution, I'm instead going to choose to invest myself in my online presence and gain a following for myself, get clout for myself. You hear how many times I'm saying myself, it's all about me. So this is a caution really to pastors and leaders and teachers, like be cautious. Technology is wonderful. I teach through Zoom all the time. I have created videos for YouTube and right now media. I am not a Luddite when it comes to technology. I think it's wonderful for advance. The one thing that technology delivers on quite well is content delivery. It's a great way of teaching. It's a great way of sharing a message. There's things that we have to be wise about. We have to be mindful of the seductive power of this technology to actually take our attention off of what should ultimately matter. For our churches, for our communities, I say this. COVID allowed us to explore new technologies in a way that many churches never even would have thought of had it not been for COVID. Now, that's been both a good thing and a bad thing, but I don't have any suspicion that that technology is just going to go away. I think we've discovered that we can do streaming services. We've discovered that we can do church online to some way, shape, or form. And a lot of churches are really like leaning into that and trying to capitalize on that. And I am not one to stand up here on my holy hill and say, that's a bad idea. You shouldn't do that. Cancel your streaming service. Church shouldn't be online. Cancel. Like, no, I'm not going to say that. All I would say is just this. Our technological platforms should be a bridge, not a cul-de-sac. And so if you have, quote unquote, online church, if you have streaming services, all those are wonderful things maybe to reach out to people that never would darken the doorway of your church. But you need to do the hard work of thinking, what does community in the body of Christ really look like? And is it sufficient just to have people tuning into our Zoom once a week? Is that really how you disciple people? Is that really how you build a community with people? It's the same debate that was had in the 1980s with cable TV preachers. It's the same doggone thing. It's just now there's a new technology. But I don't know how many people I've met through the years that came to Jesus because of a cable TV preacher. And some of them had very good, healthy relationships with Jesus. Many of them, I would dare say most of them did not. Because for them, their experience of Jesus and their experience of the church was just sitting down in the middle of the night and watching a subpar sermon from some guy somewhere. The caution that I give, because I've been asked this question a lot by people in the church, and the caution that I give is, that's wonderful, keep doing your streaming service, but do you have a strategy in place to turn that into a bridge and not just a cul-de-sac for people? Thank you, Dr. Ragsdale, for outlining some of the dangers of social media. And to our listeners, if you like and agreed with Chad's message, please make sure to share it on Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, <laughs> Instagram, LinkedIn. Connectivity, people. Let's get this out there. Let's cut the branch that we're standing off and right off. <laughs> what a way to end that. Thanks again so much. Yeah, appreciate you guys. Well, John, are you going to delete your Facebook now? Are you convinced? I'm going to delete all of it, Seth. I'm going to delete my Facebook, my Twitter. 
I'm going to delete the Spiritually Incorrect podcast, Facebook, and Twitter. No. And we're just going to... Podcasts just gonna... are not social media. They are they are a unique content. He, he, he bracketed out content as a good thing that technology does. So pat on the back for us. Well, uh, I mean, I get that. Is it, though, the best way to convey content? I mean... It's content that often ends up being in a very digestible, often overly simplified and very easily twisted into propaganda or overly simplistic sound bites. Is it a good way to do information? Maybe we should take the Bible away from people, too, because they do the same thing with the Bible and only allow the elites to teach the Bible, you know, back in like the Middle Ages. You've got a good point, Seth. It almost sounds... You've convinced me. <laughs> See, but I mean, even so, we still do have. Nope, I don't have a point. You won. You won. won. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you. That is that's staying in. No, no, but I mean, that's that's always the tension: is those who are actually academically trained or reporters who are doing actual news are standing as the watchdogs of truth, and we need some of that. But then the tension is. But what about the common people and this kind of stuff? And if you go too far either way, you know, something is lost. A hundred percent. But at the same time, information being dissolved out, this is where we get the advent of fake news and stuff like that. That's obviously another negative of technology. But at the same time, people wouldn't get news at all if it weren't for technology as well. Right? It was the advent of televisions and radio that people actually for the first time knew was going on in Washington, yeah, D.C. They knew the news. You didn't have to wait for a newspaper and figure it out a week or two yeah, weeks well, later. Yeah, well, my point was about social media specifically rather than technology en masse. Yeah, because social media is the number one way people do get their news. I feel like it's the same. You want information to get out, but you also want it to be the correct information and not to get diluted amongst the sea of bad information. But solve the fake news problem, Well, John. we're going to figure it out right it here. And you can you can trust that we really have figured it out because you can only trust us and no one else. So something I did find interesting, I kind of shaped one of the questions around one of my assumptions, which was that technological optimism was the ubiquitous. It was a universal thing up until quite recently. And then we get things like I, I know Black Mirror and Terminator. But Chad's like, no, no, that's been around since Frankenstein. And really, it's World War One and Two that people began to get more pessimistic about technology. He listed a few academic figures. I'm wondering if it's just now that this is filtering into the public. Or or is it because people are seeing their lives become overrun by technology that they feel like their life has gotten qualitatively worse because of technology's advent and technology's continued progress? We've never been know. away from technology. But there's definitely something to the contemporary technological boom that's more in your face, in your home. The TV is streaming in your living room. The phone is in your pocket. You know, like with the printing press, someone out there got a printing press and maybe you'd see a few pages here and there or someone would post a bulletin. But the technology here is deeply close. As Chad said, it has a deeply impactive view upon what we think of ourselves as human. Every 10 seconds, I'm checking my phone. I'm getting these sort of tremors when I think my phone is ringing, but it's not actually. That's just my brain tricking me because I'm like high on the phone stimulus. Think about it this way. When was the last time you and I saw each other in oh, person? Oh, that's terrifying. I feel like we've seen each yeah. other all the time. But the last time we saw each other in person was like... Thanksgiving? Yeah, like three months ago. Canadian Thanksgiving. Yeah. The true Thanksgiving. Or are you talking about the fake... The fake no. American Thanksgiving. Is that the one you're talking about? Who had I'm it first, I'm pretty sure John? we were probably more thankful. We have more to be thankful for in Canada than you do in America. Yeah, objectively so? speaking. And that's that's the truth. You can trust me. It is true. Whenever you survive every single winter, you're more thankful to be alive. That's fake news, Seth. <laughs> fake news. So with this optimism thing, I'm curious if we're just now seeing... He talked a little bit about after we ended the recording, because that's where everything good happens. He talked a little bit about he talked a little bit about how Gen Z is a bit more cynical when it comes to technology and its role. 
That's interesting to me. Is this a trend or is it just a peculiarity of the generation? Are we seeing a sort of climax of high point where people will stop seeing technology as a sort of unmitigated good and progress is inevitable and start having a bit more of a skeptical view to where we can actually use, I think he said technology is an instrumental good and seeing it not as an intrinsic good, but as an instrumental good. It's not good in itself. It's only good when it helps further some other things, which are really good. Well, our generation and Chad's was in some ways the guinea pigs for this whole transformation with the internet and social media, the first people to be hit with the first wave. In some ways, we kind of didn't know what we were getting into, and I think that's had some negative effects that we only later became self-aware of, whereas the generations that are being born into this, yes, they've been immersed into it their whole lives, they've never known a time before it, but they have also seen the negative side of things played out, and they have some of the hindsight that we didn't have when we were first stepping into it. I mean, kids are growing up today with parents who are on their phones instead of playing with them, and so kids are seeing very clearly the negative impacts from birth of these types of things in a way that older generations might not have actually had that. Yeah, that's that's really good. I think that might also have been part of the downfall of Facebook is for me and millennials in general, we see Facebook as an expression of an identity, but in a way it's its own identity. My online personality, it can be whatever I shape it to be. I can trim it. I can tailor it and make myself look as good as I want to where people who only know me through online interactions probably think I'm a very different person from who I am in person. I'm not trying to, but we all do that. We create this sort of ideal online personality. And we think of that as an expression of authenticity, whereas the younger generation sees it for what it is, which is not authentic at all, which is why (laughs) metaverse, which is just an extension of that fake identity, was just failed so miserably, I think, to draw in a new crowd. They're more attracted to TikTok and Snapchat, which to me kind of terrifies me to get on TikTok or Snapchat because it is so authentic. It has errors. It doesn't have this tailored, perfect, I can't make it perfect. That's a little terrifying to me, but for them, that's authentic. That's an extension of who they really are rather than a completely different identity. And I see that as a sort of social critique of exactly your point of how we sort of unconsciously accept this technology without really critically analyzing it. So good job, Gen Z. So let me ask you this. Do you let your kids get online and do stuff? I know they're pretty young, but they still access to technology. Kids get tablets and everything pretty young today. Yeah. My immediate inclination is to say, nope, you can get a phone in like college. I know that's, that's ridiculous, but like, I didn't actually start taking a cell phone around with me until I was in my senior year of college and everyone else had cell phones. I was just that one guy who was holding out. It was great. Senior year of college? Senior year of college, That's when we met. When we met, I did not have a phone when we met. You Neanderthal. I I only got a, I didn't, I, and it was, it was great. You know, I was just present in the moment. Eternity pulsated through me. 1975 pulsed through you. (laughs) 1975 pulsed through me. But I got a phone and it was wonderful and I had fun with it and stuff. But I, I do feel like it's played into my anxiety. I have some real anxiety issues. I always have. But my phone is, it's as Chad was saying, it breaks down the compartmentalization of our lives such that my work now follows me home. I pull out my phone while I'm watching TV and I check my emails. I check to see if colleagues have texted me or messaged me on Facebook. And so all that stress that used to be compartmentalized into the different regions is now connected and integrated in this one little thing that follows me everywhere. And even if I wasn't checking for work, I'm checking because I want to see if someone has liked my Twitter post or if someone's messaged me or if I have value and identity on this freaking phone. Thing. And so I'm looking down at my phone every 10 seconds. It's stressing me out. I need that like high of looking at the phone or else I, I feel empty and bored and dull. I just need this constant distraction. Whereas before I would just sit and chill and listen to music quietly or go for a walk and not need constant distractions. Now I'm just constantly needing distractions, Seth. I need my phone to keep me constantly busy and occupied and distracted. I hate it, Seth. I hate it. 
ever since I met you in college, my life immediately went downhill. And I know that's just correlation, not causation, but I associate it with you, Seth. I associate it with you. You see me in your dorm room with Devil Horn saying, Take the cell phone, John. You'll be connected. (laughs) (laughs) Connectivity. The future is friendly. So I remember I was probably 12, 13 years old. My first smartphone was the iPhone 3. The iPhone 3G. My mom gave it to me. She's like, all right, here you go. And then I saw all the features. I saw that I had full internet access. It was unbelievable to me. Could not believe it. Knew there was no going back after that moment. No going back. No going back. I sorry. I don't know that song. Is it from 1975? It's a worship song. What? I don't know that one. It's like I've decided to follow Jesus. No going back. No going. Sorry, no. it's not okay. on my Spotify on my phone. Excuse me. Sorry, I was I was mockingly applying worship songs to technology to epitomize the age. <laughs> to finish that out, I I just remember like thinking there's no going back from this phone because I remember before that. Do you remember MSN Messenger? Did you ever do yes, that? I yes, I did do that. I remember when elementary school, I, I always went to a school that was far away. I could never see any of my friends after school. And I remember MSN Messenger came out. And I remember every time I got on the computer and praying someone else was online so that I could actually have a chat and be with my friends after school. And then right around wow. the same time I got the smartphone, the biggest thing happened, which was Xbox Live. I got Xbox Live on my Xbox. And then all of us guys would play Halo 2 deep into mm. the night and all of a sudden now i'm completely connected with my friends Technology's amazing this connection stuff is giving me stuff that i never could have had before what could possibly go wrong i know it's it's interesting because i remember msn for example and i lived in a big city and so i actually lived 45 minutes away from my school and all my school friends and had to travel by bus every day to get to that and I was constant. I felt very lonely as a kid because, you know, my school friends didn't live near me. I would get on the bus at the end of the day, go home, and I couldn't stay around and hang out because it takes an hour to get home. And I always felt in this urban context like I wasn't integrated. But then when I got MSN, I started chatting with lots of school friends online. And I felt like that really did integrate me. And I, I wonder if the easiness of the countryside where you know, you can kind of just pull out your car and drive for like two minutes and you're at your friend's house or whatever, like a small town of 2000 people where everybody lives really close and everyone uses the same grocery store. Everyone goes to the same church. Everything's much more integrated and embodied in contrast to a more cosmopolitan urban area where it's kind of harder to do that. I don't know. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe the countryside is more spread out and the city is more condensed and I'm an idiot and my experience is particular to me. So I did grow up in a smaller town. I lived about 30 minutes away from my school and my church. So it's a little bit closer, but here's the problem. There's no public transportation. It's literally just fields. And until I was 16, I had zero possibility of connecting them. Zero. Like I couldn't take a bus until I had a car. So everyone's screwed. All of us are loners who need the internet to have intimacy. And it's, it doesn't matter where you're from or who you are. You're all what's, in, what's, interesting, what's interesting is what allowed us to, me to even go to school 30 minutes away was another invention. A yeah. car. A car yeah. allowed, it, it connected adults and subsequently their kids, but it divorced the kids' relationships in a way that didn't really recover until the advent of social media and cell phones. That you could go, you know, all the kids really did go to the local schoolyard, which was always walking distance, because otherwise you're not going to get there. Yeah. Chad was saying technology makes us rethink time and space. Distances no longer mean the same thing when everyone can live really far apart and drive for 10 minutes to get to the same location. And so it restructures time and space, but only for those who have access to the technology. Children can't just drive their car wherever they want. They're at the whims of their parents. And if your parents aren't willing to constantly drive you around to keep your social calendar up to date, you're not going to grow up with that integrated social type of situation. 
in which case you have to turn to a different technology. You have to get online. Yeah, you were you were sort of a, a Luddite whenever you came to Ozark. You didn't have a car. You didn't have a cell phone. I didn't need a car, Seth. In Canada, people walk places. We have I sidewalks know. in Canada. I moved to Joplin, Missouri, and there were no sidewalks. Welcome to the U.S. <laughs> you you literally couldn't exist in the States without a car. I remember, I think I was there when you got your first car. You were. It was a car the same size you were. It was wonderful. <laughs> It was a Scion XD. I think our conversations so got, our conversations really gone off the rails here. If we were physically in the same room, this conversation would have gone a lot better because that embodied incarnational, creational aspect of things would have kept us focused on what matters. With this trivial technology comes trivial conversation. Yeah, but at least people like these sorts of confrontations because it's authentic. It's not authentic at all. Me and Seth are manufacturing this banter for your benefit. In fact, we're not even real. We're just generated from chat GPT. Thanks again for listening to the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing and leaving us a five-star review. We're an up-and-coming podcast, and every little bit helps. Also consider joining our Patreon page. Patreon sponsors have exclusive access to unaired episodes, different kinds of merchandise, the ability to suggest an episode, and even an hour-long interview with Jonathan and I. Check it out at spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com and see what you're missing out on. Sound effects from zatsplat.com. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube or Spotify.